on a Sunday, a podcast about more than church. Welcome to the Only on a Sunday podcast. My name is Daniel Lowry, and this season we are focusing on stories from the field, speaking with practitioners of mission and gospel movement in the world. For this episode, we have the privilege of Chris Marshall joining us. Chris currently serves with Novo, a group of missionaries that are multiplying movements of the gospel in unreached areas of the world. His current role involves serving the tremendous movement of God that is happening in the Middle East and with resource development for the overall mission. Chris served for 14 years as Vice President of Global Advancement with Kids Around the World, a Christian organization formed in 1994 and affiliated with Campus Crusade for Christ. Chris lives with his wife, Katie, and four children in San Clemente, California. Over the last 16 years of ministry, Chris has traveled to over 100 countries, meeting and serving leaders with the goal of fueling movements of the gospel. Without a doubt, the most exciting movement he has seen has been what is happening amongst Muslims around the world and the launching of disciple makers who have a chance at reaching 10 million Muslims to Christ over the next decade. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, what a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to have this conversation and just continue sharing what God's doing around the world. Yeah, I. Uh, you are kind of a last-minute podcast guest here on this season. We are at a gathering together, and you had a chance to share about kind of the work that you were overseeing in the Middle East. And currently in the U.S., there's a lot of, uh, I don't know how you would say, turmoil going on in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And I thought, man, we have got to get this guy on to share the story. It is so timely Mm -hmm. because so much of what I see the Christian response in the West towards what's happening in the Middle East is to, you know, do a Facebook post or put a meme or say, you know, Mm -hmm. let's pray for. And, And I think it's great. We should pray for the Middle East. But oftentimes when we do that, we don't know that Jesus is already there. Mm. you know, that the Holy Spirit's already moving. So I'm really, really excited to share your story with our listeners. But before we do that, what I'd like to do is, as we start all episodes with a funny story. So Chris, if you could share with us a funny mission or outreach story, and remember, this is a PG-13 podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, luckily in ministry, usually you get those PG-13 stories. (laughs) Yeah, awesome. Yeah, definitely a lot of stories uh, over the last 16 years of traveling to hundreds of countries, hundreds of times. But without a doubt, I could go over story after story of my time traveling to North Korea from 2013 to 2017. I went there four times. And first time I went there, we built a playground at an orphanage. We had minders all around us, uh, kids all around us looking at us, very behaved, not really able to laugh too much or controlled in so many different ways. Uh, and so we built this playground. I had 25 workers that spoke Korean. So it was quite the challenge. We had a lot of fun, ate lots of kimchi. And uh, we're getting done with the playground and uh, comes towards the dedication. And we come back the next day to dedicate, to see the kids on it and to see them express themselves freely without any control. And so they went and played on it. They had a blast. It was just this huge I think there was almost 1,200 kids that were playing on this one playground. It was really loud and and, uh, rowdy. And then you hear this whistle. 
and uh, the whistle meant that it was time to go back into classes. And the kids, one by one, walked by this pole. We, we didn't put this pole. Uh, they had put this pole up after we had left. And uh, it was pole. And on the pole, kind of about, I don't know, five feet, five feet high, was a profile of a face kind of cut out of steel. And it was really thin and just profile of face. And it swung around so you could kind of swings around. So and on the side of the face, it said USA. So each kid, as they walked out of the playground towards their classroom, would go to that pole and slap it and the face would swing around the pole uh, <laughs> like they were slapping the United States. And I'm just looking at it and thinking, hey, we're right here watching you. And you're, <laughs> yeah, right? we built this playground for you. And here you are, you know, basically saying that you don't like the United States. And I just thought that was such an interesting expression for them. I, I wonder if the kids really wanted to do that or not, but it's always a mystery to me. But the next year we came back uh, to that playground and, uh, they, you know, just in North Korea, it's just so quiet. And about a mile away from the school, we heard a noise and the drivers, I, I said, hey, what what is that noise? And they're like, that's the kids on the playground. You could hear it a mile away. We, sure enough, we got there and the kids were just all over the playground having fun, smiling being kids in a place where you weren't able able to really express yourself. So that's just one of the many, many stories filled with ping pong, kimchi, and soju we had in North Korea over the years. Oh my gosh, you're making me hungry. Like the best food <laughs> in the world is Korean barbecue. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right, we're done. Time to go. <laughs> oh, that's fabulous. Yeah, I worked at a Korean church for three years, all, all Korean speaking. So hmm. I had an opportunity to uh, work with a lot of people actually from North Korea. Yeah. Um, fresh off the boat, as they say. Um, so That's yeah, awesome. super fun. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah, let's start just hear a little bit about your story before we get into the Middle East. So tell us a little bit about your kind of spiritual upbringing, your calling to ministry, kind of what God did in your life. Yeah. Well, it's been quite the journey. My dad's a pastor. I grew up a pastor's kid, had a pretty squeaky clean childhood, went to college and got a little bit rowdier there, but uh, still felt very connected to my faith. And then I moved to Maui when I was 22, felt like I needed to have a different life and just explore a little bit. Got to Maui and just started volunteering in my church. I actually told the pastor, I said, listen, God told me that I should just do anything that he wants me to do. So I'm here. If you ever want me to do something, I'll do it. And so it was pretty interesting. He's like, okay, so can you lead worship? Sure. I don't know how to play the guitar, sing a lead worship. Can you do children's work. Sure. Can you lead youth group? Sure. Can you preach? Never done that. My dad's a pastor, but I'm not a pastor. So I was preaching. So it just was a moment, uh, kind of a period in my life where I grew a ton. I really felt empowered and really saw some of my gifts coming out. But I knew I never wanted to be a pastor. Uh, I just saw what my dad went through. And so a few years later, I had an opportunity to join a nonprofit called Kids Around the World. And I just remember asking the president, I said, hey, what are you looking for? He said, we're looking for this type of person and with these types of skills. And sure enough, God, over those five years that I was in Maui, had really uh, given me those skills and I knew I was perfect for the job. And so that's kind of how I came into ministry. Uh, and it's been a really incredible journey that God has led me through just growth and personal growth, family growth, and then just getting to this place where I feel like I'm just right in the sweet spot of what the Lord wants me to do and what he made me to do. So it's been a good journey. Not too many, not too many bumps, but I really feel like God's refined my ministry over the years. And 
one of the parables that really kind of got me going was parable of the talents and the idea of what am I doing with what God gave me? And that really set me on a course uh, towards ministry. And I would say building God's kingdom instead of my own. Awesome. Awesome. And so what kind of work did you do with the kids around the world? What were you responsible for? What kinds of things was God doing there? Yeah, Kids Around the World, when I started, was a fairly small ministry, just a few staff. And they were building playgrounds, creating environments where children can come to know Jesus. We were training children's workers to do basically children's DMM, disciple-making movements amongst children using special training that we developed. And then we were doing food programs. So in the beginning, it was pretty small. But 2008, I moved from Maui to California. I really felt like God wanted us to really be in a place where the ministry could grow during 2008, downturn of the economy. And God grew our ministry tremendously from 2008 until I left in 2019. Uh, we were reaching millions of children every week with discipleship. We were building hundreds of playgrounds in some really bizarre places, uh, which was really fun. One, we had Fidel Castro come to the first playground we built in Cuba and lots of stories like that. And then we were able to distribute over 20 million meals into strategic areas where discipleship for children was happening. So it was a really interesting time, lots of growth. I grew as an individual and the organization. God just blessed it and grew it uh, over those uh, 14 years I was with them. Awesome. Could you just, because there might be some people that might not fully understand what you mean when you say DMM or disciple making movements, can you just share a little bit about kind of your understanding of that? Yeah, disciple making movements, pretty simple. Just it's disciples who make disciples. And so the idea with uh, disciple making movements is how do we train and equip disciples to be multipliers? And these typically are ordinary people, not experts, that are carrying God's mission into their context. And so typically in these disciple-making movements, you'll get unusual, ordinary people who are taking the gospel into networks that aren't really accessible by the church or by Christians. And so in my estimation, the only way to reach the world and really fulfill the Great Commission is through disciples making disciples. If every believer made a new disciple of Jesus every year, uh, we would have the world covered in a few years. So that's a little bit about DMN. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, one of the things we talk about in our podcast is in in the church we have an addition mentality. You know, we mm -hmm. add services, we add staff, we add ministries, and the kingdom is really about multiplication. Mm. You know, that's so, right. Yeah, really appreciate that. So, what would it look like as you're doing DMM with kids? Like, how do they multiply? Were you expecting that they were going to go start Bible studies, or they mm. were going to invite other kids? Kind of, what did that look like? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first idea is that children, I mean, we need to disciple children before a certain age because that's the age that they're most impressionable. So one is just for them, for that individual. But because of the nature of our strategy, and this would be even a strategy we have now with Novo, is that there's always an obedience statement. So the children are learning a story. We would always ask them who are you going to share this story with? And so they would be sharing it with other kids. They would also be sharing it a lot of times with their parents. So the multiplication part of it was typically as your I will statement, your obedience statements, they would be talking to other kids, inviting them to the groups, or they would be talking to their parents. And then another thing is a lot of times these kids would actually 
come to a discipleship club and then go back into their village or their community and do a do another discipleship club kind of copying what they just heard. So we saw a lot of multiplication happen with that. And I would say that the DMM process in, in using Discovery Bible study as the tool really empowered children to be part of the conversations versus being taught to. And in that case, I would say we raised up a lot of confident children who are really more active in their faith than normal children because they were participating in the Bible studies. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, just just the thought of like my eight-year-old going into his, or maybe he was a little young, but my 10 or 11-year-old going into, you know, somewhere and leading their own Bible study. I mean, that's that's both encouraging and convicting <laughs> at the totally. same time. Yeah. So totally. yeah, awesome. So you're with kids around the world, you know, flying to all over, all over the world. And then somehow you join Novo. Mm-hmm. So what, what what's that story? Yeah, 2011, first time I went to the Middle East. I was in Iraq when the Arab Spring started, got trapped in Iraq. Spent a lot of time with some former Al-Qaeda people that were followers of Jesus. And during that time, my heart just grew so big for Muslims. And this was before kind of the Syrian crisis and everything. And so I just started going back to the Middle East. Over the years, I kept going back and kept trying to push all of, as much as I could towards the region. So I went to a lot of the different countries, met a lot of leaders. And over that time, I would say I met a lot of good people doing good things. You know, they were helping refugees. They were doing food programs. They were starting schools. And those were good things. They were not bad things. They were good things. Uh, After three or four years, 2014 or so, I was like, man, okay, there's a lot of good things happening. But who is sharing the gospel to the Muslims? I mean, there's got to be someone sharing the gospel here. And it it was honestly really hard for me to find. I mean, some people were saying, hey, we have six or eight Muslims come to faith this year, and they would celebrate that. But I got connected with a guy named Nadine Costa from Novo, and I was over there. I met him, and I just became friends with him. And every trip I went, I I just wanted more because I kept hearing stories and meeting people uh, that were coming to faith in the most radical ways uh, and then multiplying. I remember uh, I was in a refugee tent right on the Syrian border. Uh, with the Yazidi family. It was the first time I'd ever heard of a Yazidi family coming to faith in Jesus. And it wasn't just them. It was like this whole room full of Yazidis, Uh, lots of Kurds, lots of Druze, even Shiites and Sunnis coming to faith. And so again, for four or five years, I just kept pushing all of our ministry towards them. And then uh, realized that (laughs) this ministry actually has an office in California where I live. I started meeting some of the guys there and then uh, there was an opportunity. I, I knew my heart was for the hardest, the farthest, the last. I'd always been involved in unreached people group work, been part of the finishing the task uh, task force to reach the, the last unreached people groups on earth. And so I knew I was built for the 1%. And so that's really how God pulled me there uh, with just a little invitation from Novo in 2019. And uh, I really feel like there's really no, I mean, for me, at least, uh, my life is worth this cause for Muslims coming to faith. There's a lot to share about that, but our, the uh, president of Nova will say it's possible we could see the, the demise of Islam in our lifetime uh, because we are seeing some incredible things right now. And there's, again, more to share about that. But that's where my heart got pulled. Yeah, that is just like, it's just mind-blowing, the, mm-hmm. the demise of Islam. I mean, that's just... 
I, I don't know too many people who would even think that that would be a possibility, you know? <laughs> um, but I, I really love what you said about, or I'm struck by what you said about, there were a lot of good things happening, but, you know, who was sharing the gospel? And as I'm looking at kind of the church in the West, I'm thinking, you know, it's a lot the same, really. There's a lot of good things happening, mm-hmm. but who's sharing the gospel? Mm-hmm. And and my wife always talks about being a nice person isn't the same as being a believer, <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. because you're nice to your barista, you know, mm-hmm. who, who is, you know, we got to be sharing that message. That's right. So when you talk about the demise of Islam, give us some numbers, give us some statistics. What is happening over there today? What's going on? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a loaded question because every day it changes. <laughs> what happened yesterday? How about that? Yeah, what happened yesterday, man. <laughs> you know, our headquarters are in, are in Beirut, Lebanon. Obviously, Lebanon is going through a really a big trial right now. And that's been compounded by what's happening in Afghanistan. All terrorist groups in the region are empowered today, whereas two or three weeks ago, they weren't quite as strong. Uh, So there's just a lot of changes, but that is the Middle East. It's always changing. There's always something new. There's always a new challenge. But what we like to say, only because of our experience, is that during these challenges, God grows his church. So God is always working. He's working behind the scenes. I would say with our ministry, we're not really an evangelical ministry, although we have uh, have 98,000 Muslims come to faith in 2020 during a COVID year. Uh, we're just doing our numbers for this year and finding out what, what our totals are this year, but it's going to be possibly double. So what we do, our ministry philosophy are, is di- disciple-making movements, but typically in this context, Jesus is already meeting people in dreams and visions in, in miraculous ways, and our staff is just there merely to pick them up and to collect them, the, the harvesters. And so because of that, we're just doing lots of relationship building, we are inviting people to discovery Bible studies. Certainly, we are doing some engaging, engaging culture work with different schools, different feeding programs, but all with the focus and the goal uh, to make disciples who make disciples. And so over the last seven years, we've started just under 25,000 discovery Bible studies, which would be kind of like a home church. This year, we've added over 7,000 discovery Bible studies in 15 different countries in the Middle East. And if you started to name every country in the Middle East, you would probably realize there's there's right around 15. So that means we work in almost every country, including some closed countries. So in those 2,500 Discovery Bible studies, we have about 375,000 people in them. And again, 98,000 new followers of Jesus last year, and we're just getting our numbers for this year. And so what's happening is, I would say just generally, these people are typically coming from the margins. Lots of refugees, lots of women, lots of handicapped special needs people, which is real exciting. And then certainly God is doing some new things within different extremist people groups, the the Shiite Hezbollah-aligned people in Lebanon, for instance, or the Yazidis in Iraq, or even some of the more extremist groups in Baghdad and Yemen and some other places. So God is working um, amongst the margin, but he's also getting into really interesting places. And so because of that, we call our movement an insider movement. All of our staff in the countries are all nationals. We have no Americans on staff in these countries. They're all nationals, so they're all insiders. Uh, even within countries, uh, you know, you take a country like Lebanon, for instance, there's different villages all over the place, Druze and Shiite and Sunni and even 
Christian background believer villages, and we have insiders in those villages. So we're not taking a Christian and putting him into a Shiite neighborhood. We have a Shiite that God raises up in his neighborhood to reach his people. Uh, and that's happening all over the Middle East. So because of that, there's lots of streams of activity, you know, different leaders that are multiplying and producing different branches of believers. Uh, so I'll just give you one story. I won't name the country, uh, but one of the harder countries in the region, we had a, one of our workers, she was new in her faith, but she wanted to see her sister and brother-in-law come to faith in Jesus. Three months went by, she couldn't convince them. Finally, after three months, they came to her and they said, hey, we're, we're ready to listen now. And so they became followers of Jesus. And just after two weeks of them being just new Christians, they led over 200 people to the Lord. So that's a little bit of multiplication right there. We have another country, which actually, I don't know how much time we have, but amazing story of these two women that came to faith. And now they're the leaders, our leaders in the country. So having women be leaders in a really tough Muslim country, after one year, they already have 124 DBS groups that are started. So really, we're a leadership development organization. Everyone's a leader. As you come to follow Jesus, you're a leader in his mission. And so we are just constantly cultivating leaders and launching them into ministry. One of the things that you hear quite often is, and you mentioned that Jesus is already there and you're just kind of, I don't know, you're just kind of throwing the net out, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the fish are already, already risen to the top is visions, dreams mm-hmm. that people are having visions and dreams of Jesus. Could you maybe share a little bit more about what's happening and maybe a story or two mm-hmm. about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a well-known fact. I, I think God has, I, I believe God has is, is favored the Muslims right now. This wouldn't just be in the Middle East, but this would also be in Afghanistan, Central Asia, Iran, other places. Uh, certainly is feels like he is near to those that are in Islam. And so, yeah, you know, I, I would say God is doing the work and we're merely there to kind of meet them. And that, But that is a big deal. I mean, you have to be present and wanting to kind of help people to, to be able to really receive these people that are seeing these dreams of vision. So our staff are located all around the world. What's interesting is a lot of these people, and I would say even places where there's not that many workers are seeing dreams and visions, but there's no believers for them to help interpret this dream or vision, or there's no church for them to go into. We have some of our people that will literally see a dream They'll go to a church and the church will say, no, don't, don't come here. Get away. We know that you're a Shiite. We don't, you know, or, you know, Muslim, we don't want you to come here. And then they'll kind of get pushed away from the church. So uh, that gets, gets pretty sad, actually. Um, our leaders in, I was just mentioning in one of our leaders in one of, one of the harder countries in the area, it was, it's these two ladies. And what happened is this is a, a cool little story, but this one lady, she got married. And she was pregnant, had a girl, and immediately her husband divorced her because she had a girl. So she got remarried, and she got pregnant again and had another girl. And as soon as she had that girl, her husband divorced her. At this point, she was pretty distraught. She saw Jesus in a dream, and so she became a follower of Jesus. Her One of her ex-husbands found out that she became a follower of Jesus, and then he told the authorities and put her in jail. So the warden of this jail was a woman. And uh, this woman, which was really interesting, for every five years since she was little, she would have a dream about Jesus. So just, you know, when she was five, she had a dream and then it wouldn't happen until she was 10. And then it wouldn't happen until she was 15. 
And so when this lady came in that was a follower of Jesus, because she saw it on her paperwork saying that she had become a Christian, she said, wow, I need her to help me interpret what I've seen. So she called her into the office. They struck up a conversation in a relationship and just started talking. And the follower of Jesus would explain what her dream was about and, and help her. That lasted for a little while, but then the lady got released from jail and went back home with her two daughters. And the warden ended up getting married and she had a baby girl and her husband divorced her. <laughs> and so distraught, she says, wow, I'm, I don't, and she, and she got fired from her job. So now she doesn't have a job. She has a baby girl and she's distraught. And she says, you know, I need to go meet my friend who is a follower of Jesus. So they decided they would meet up at one point. And so this, uh, the, the former prisoner, she was walking through the market to go meet the warden. And as she was walking through the mar market, she heard, felt this bump. Someone bumped into her and put something in her bag and she looked at it. She said, oh, I'll just, you know, it, it was a book. And so she, she'll just give it to her, decide she wanted to give it to her friend. Well, her friend, the warden that night had a dream about Jesus. And in that dream, Jesus was giving her a book. Well, they met up and the former prisoner said, hey, it's great to see you. I just wanted, like, I wanted to give you this gift that someone randomly had put in my bag. And it happened to be a red Bible, the same red Bible that the former warden had saw in a dream. Oh, you got to be kidding yeah. me. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's awesome. It's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, now these two ladies are the leaders uh, in our country. And what God is doing through them is miraculous. Mm. God is certainly near and, and has favor over the Muslims. And I would say women too. Lots of women are receiving these dreams, which I think is really good. Yeah. Any other stories you can think of in terms of everyday people? I mean, a warden, uh, a lady who's been divorced twice. I mean, that definitely qualifies as everyday people, but just everyday people that are, that are doing things and the reason being is in this season, we're really wanting to encourage people, like wherever you are, wherever you find yourself, whatever context, Jesus could do the same through you, mm -hmm. you know? And so here are these stories of people in the Middle East who have so much to lose, you know, so much to lose, but they're still doing it. So, mm -hmm. but, you know, any other stories you could share with us? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I maybe, just, maybe there's too many. <laughs> I don't <yeah>. know. <laughs> on and on and on and on and on. I actually forget most of them, but I was just in, I was just with our team in Europe. Uh, we have a lot of Muslims that are coming into Europe and coming to follow Jesus. And there's this one guy, I won't say his name, but he was, he's from Iran and he is from a Muslim background. And he was a mad kid and he just, he was just really, really brutal, lots of tattoos and somehow got to Europe and started terrorizing Europe. And he wouldn't tell me everything that he would do, but he was doing all kinds of bad things, stealing and just terrorizing people there. Well, he had a dream, came to faith in Jesus in a really cool way with our team in Europe. And now he's one of our key leaders. And so I was talking with him. I was like, so what's it like? I mean, you have this incredible testimony. And now you're meeting people that speak your language that are coming across the border. What are you seeing? He's like, he's like, Chris, you don't, you don't even know. I mean, my testimony is an incredible gift. And whenever I tell my testimony to someone from my country, they always accept Jesus. And I was like, what do you mean always? He's like, if you show me someone from my country and I tell my story, they will accept Jesus. And he's baptized hundreds of people 
just him. He's an ordinary guy. He's a refugee. Doesn't have paperwork. He can't even travel in Europe. He lives in a refugee in a refugee camp, married with one one small boy. He's just an ordinary guy that God is using. And so there's several like that. I would say on our team in in just this one country, there are six or seven that are just like that. So God is using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. But again, if we're going to really fulfill the Great Commission, it has to be that way. It can't be done through experts. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I said on a prior podcast is in the church, we need ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And right now in the church, we have extraordinary people doing ordinary things, <laughs> you know? True. So we, True. we, yeah, we need to, we need to flip that. True. So you had mentioned 125,000 discovery Bible studies. For those that don't know what a discovery Bible study is or how it works, can you share a little bit more about what that might look like? Just an, an average group somewhere in the Middle East, what would that look like? Yeah. Yeah. So it's 25,000. 25,000. Sorry. Discovery well, studies. I'm believing for 125,000. <laughs> hey, in five years, we expect to have way more than that. You okay, know, uh, okay. Discovery Bible study is, I mean, it's, it's an incredible tool. It's just a simple process that you would take people to discover who Jesus is and participate in that discovery. And so basically the premise is you take just small passages of the Bible. You aren't bringing in podcasts or other books or anything. You're only studying that part of the, the scripture. And you're just asking three simple questions. What does it say about God? What does it say about man? And how do I obey this? And so it's really a discovery process in obedience-based. And so that's actually the secret sauce is the obedience-based part of it. As you make I will statements, you're, you're keeping yourself accountable to the people in the group to do what you said you're going to do. And because of that, I learned this, not for my own formation, spiritual formation, but I learned this to bless, to love, care for others and for outreach. And so because of that, it multiplies very, very rapidly. So groups form uh, within weeks. Uh, One group will start and then it'll split off very quickly. And so, uh, you know, the leaders of these groups, so everyone that comes to a a group, uh, even as I was sharing with it about the children stuff, once you come into a group, immediately it's multiplicative, uh, multipliable. So if you come to the group today, you can teach another group tomorrow. And that is, you know, one of the key things that help it multiply too. That's very simple. It's not complex. It doesn't require a seminary degree or any, you know, discipleship class or any training. It's you come, you watch, you learn, and then you do. And so that's that's what's what's like. So these discovery Bible studies are home based groups typically. Sometimes we have to get really creative in some of our countries, so we'll rent some different spaces. But typically they're in homes. We have some that are under overpasses. We have some that are out in parks under trees. Uh, we have the one uh, that I was telling you about the with the prison. We had one outside the prison, and so these are utilizing. So we're not paying for any structures really, or any we don't have any overhead with it. Our people, our leaders aren't paid because they're on God's mission. They have a mission of God on their heart, so they aren't paid. Typically, we have some paid staff, but not very many percentage-wise. And so they they can just, they're like a virus. They're like a holy virus. They can just spread and go almost anywhere. So you could do a discovery Bible study on a plane and in the back of a car and a taxi ride at an airport as you're walking to places and in a lot of ways, the discovery Bible study process feels very first century. 
feels very organic, feels very spirit filled and empowered because you're letting the spirit, basically everyone's hearing from God, which is kind of unusual for the Western church to think about, but uh, you'll have someone that actually what we're finding is a lot of people, a lot of Muslims before they even come to faith in Jesus are hearing Jesus's voice. And so our people in our discovery Bible studies are always taught, listen to God, what is God telling you about this passage? And then whatever he's telling you to do, you need to do it. So it's an incredible process, I have to say, even for me. So, I mean, a lot of people will say, well, what about the Western church? We hear the Western church doesn't really, they can't really do discovery Bible study, the process because of our church background. And, and that is true. However, I've seen it really work really powerfully in the West as well. So I'm, I'm hoping that some forms of that could work here in the West because we need to read and obey. We don't need to read and then wait for the next reading and teaching. We need to read and obey. So, you know, in the West, <laughs> what what is the phrase? We're we're overtaught and underobeyed. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was a local pastor for fifteen years, just like your your dad, and mm-hmm. I probably went through all the things that your dad went through. Mm-hmm. It's it's oftentimes not a safe environment, mm-hmm. but. You know, we would we would want people to go and do mission and all that kind of stuff. And looking back, man, the hoops that I made them jump through hmm. and take this class and and you know, even to become a member of a church, you have four, you know, like the saddleback model, four classes for two hours each, you know? Mm-hmm. And oh my gosh, you want to do ministry. So yeah, go get yourself a three year seminary degree. And you know, there's just so much that you have to do. But it sounds like what you guys are doing is a lot less, mm. right? So what does the training look like for the people in the Middle East? Like what is mm. what is the basic training that you're doing? Is it just let them go? Or I'm assuming you're doing a, at least a little something. Yeah. I've, yeah, we get asked that a lot. My dad actually asked me a lot. How are you training these leaders? You know, how do you know that they're staying true to the scripture? And well, I would just say that all of our trainings, we do have a lot of trainings. We have leadership trainings and we have, you know, obviously discovery Bible study training and other trainings on other topics, but all of our trainings are, are discovery based. When you discover something, you learn more. So there's lots of, there's lots of questions behind it. And then there's always, there's always a something to do after you learn. So you never are learning and then waiting to the next time to learn. So those processes are our discovery. They're all discovery processes. Uh, as far as the training, I mean, you know what? The Bible is a pretty good teacher uh, that we found. And, and the way we found it is... Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> if we just stick to the Bible and we don't corrupt people's minds with, you know, other books and podcasts and other sermons from other people and, how, and what God's telling them, there's a lot of purity in this process. And so what that looks like is in the discovery Bible process, they're only reading one scripture. They're not reading concordances. They're not listening to podcasts. They're not listening to sermons or anything. They're literally reading one passage and then hearing from God and then hearing everyone else's interpretations of that. And so a lot of times people say, well, what happens if someone says, hey, I I saw this in there and this is what I think of it and it's totally wrong. Well, they're going to self-correct. That whole group is going to self-correct be like, you know what? I don't see that in there. Where did you get that from? No, we don't see that. So it's a very accountable group. And in that, I, as you're reading the scripture several times, as you're fellowshipping, as the Holy Spirit is leading, as you're hearing from God, as you're obeying, that is a refiner's fire for the gospel. So our leaders, 
get trained up really quickly to the point where you can have a Muslim come to faith in Jesus and feel like they've been a Christian for many, many, many years. You know, they just, they love our holy book and they just read it voraciously and they obey it. And so, you know, there's nothing like putting what you read to the test and that refining your theology. And so there's a lot of, lot to learn from the West. You know, I think, think about theology. My, my brother went to, um, he's got his PhD in New Testament and he actually really didn't, didn't think that helped him at all because he basically got out of the practice of doing, obeying, and just learning. And so it really kind of clipped his wings. I like to say a lot of times our churches or our methodologies, uh, you know, here we are lions and these, our churches are like dulling our, our claws, dulling our teeth. Our roar isn't as loud. We're just, we're just, we're losing some of that effectiveness because we're getting comfortable. And in this process of DMM, you are on the mission field every week. You have no, you cannot lay down. You have to go hunt your own food every week, right? Um, and that's exhilarating because God is moving. Actually, for me, when I, in the summer, we've took a break from our small group in our DBS. And it's been really hard because I'm not challenged as much as I had been during the school year uh, when we have our DBS. So there's something very empowering, something very pure about the process. And as far as we're concerned, we have some of the most amazing leaders because we let the Holy Spirit and the Bible lead. And it sounds cliche, but I feel like we have a pretty pure form of this. And to be honest, we're talking about DNA. We're spreading DNA. As you multiply, you're spreading DNA. Either you're spreading good DNA or bad DNA. God forbid that we would multiply bad DNA or bad practices. And because it's the Holy Spirit and God's Word, there's incredible DNA that gets spread. And I'll just say this real quick. We have one of our streams that is up to 19 generations. So that's pretty pure. And when you say 19 generations, what do you mean by that? So that would be, so a gospel movement typically is defined by a fourth generation movement. What that would mean is that I would lead someone to the Lord. They would lead someone else to the Lord. They would lead someone else to the Lord. They would lead someone else to the Lord. That's fourth generation. We had that 19 times. So basically, me as the first first person, I wouldn't really know the fourth generation. That would be kind of, but 19, I mean, that could be in another city. That would be really far away. And so what that means is that people have the DNA to multiply. Uh, just to put that into perspective, there's 1,300 movements of the gospel like that up to the fourth generation around the world. 1,300. There's zero in the West. Mm. Yeah. So we can't get that fourth generation. Uh, I actually don't even know if we can get to the second or third generation. It's, it's pretty hard. Yeah, that was my um, experience in the local churches. It's easy to disciple down one because mm -hmm. that's why people were there to convince someone to disciple someone else. There was a there was a spattering, you know, there was a few, but to go beyond that, I mean, it was so rare. Mm. Four or five times in the whole time I pastored, and I mean, yeah. and I'm trying. You know, most churches aren't trying, but I'm trying to do that. Mm. Yeah, I really appreciate what you said about it's just being organic. It's a more pure form. And the passages that really jump to my mind as you're talking are um, in Revelation where it says, and they will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Mm, amen. That's basically what you have going on. Like, you yeah. know, Jesus has saved these people by his blood and it's the word of their testimony. This is what, this is what Jesus has done for me, mm -hmm. you know? That's right. And the other one is, um, and the Spirit will guide you into all truth. 
And oftentimes, you know, we have DBSs that we're doing here in, in, in our work and, you know, we're spreading them out. And the question that always comes out is, well, how do you hold people accountable? And, you know, it's just kind of like, well, why should I? I thought that was the Holy Spirit's job. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, I, yeah. didn't, I didn't know I was the theology police, you know, like That's where right. where did that happen? And, and so, so much <laughs> of that is, I think, creating a ceiling you know, on, on movement. That's right. Which brings me to the next question is, is barriers, right? You've talked about, a, I kind of mentioned them a little bit, but what are the barriers that you see, you know, just in your experience in the West of, that are holding people back from mission, from movement, from, from that four generation deep kind of discipleship? Hmm. Yeah, it's a good thing. I like that question. I mean, I think there's a lot of barriers and we have to admit that there's processes in our church that are barriers sometimes. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast this morning, actually, and it said something really mis- interesting. So we're, we're creating people that have the gospel of, of salvation versus the gospel of the kingdom. And so because of that, we're yeah. producing believers versus followers. Believers are are not as activated as followers. When you have a kingdom perspective, uh, suddenly you are following Jesus. And when you follow Jesus, you're obeying him because you're following him. So I think that that is is something, is just something within our models of church and that just isn't producing that. So that's a barrier. So I do think experts are a barrier. You know, I mean, we've seen just how in the public education system and colleges, as you become smarter, you start to... I always say you start to pervert knowledge in some ways. And I would say that we, we do that as experts too. And so experts can keep, can keep ordinary people from being on God's mission or hearing from God. We saw that with the Reformation 500 years ago. I believe there's inklings of that even today, how the experts are kind of keeping ordinary people from God's mission. And then certainly I think the easiest thing to think of is just comfort. I mean, our... We're just so comfortable here. You know, we have so many things going for us. We don't have a strong need, even as Christians, to really put ourselves out there. And we don't have enough time. I'll just give you an example. I mean, when COVID happened, I traveled a lot. When COVID happened, I wasn't on any planes. And I suddenly was like, well, shoot, I need to really get to know my neighbors. And I realized I only knew six non-Christians. I mean, here I am. I, I think most Christians know a lot of Christians. We hang out with a lot of Christians. And so Amen. that's really convicting for me. And so I, I worked really hard during COVID to meet non-Christians. I ended up getting to know about 38. But if we don't know non-Christians, how are we going to share our faith with them? And if we only hang out with Christians, how are we ever going to get exposed to Christians if we aren't engaging those far from God on a daily basis? And so we, we need to build rhythms in our life where we can actually be on mission. And so when I teach in my small group, I was like, let's just give one hour this week, just one hour, which was a lot uh, for, for some people, you know, and prayer walk or have a spiritual conversation or, or invite a family over for dinner, you know, just one hour a week. Let's start there. And then next week, let's do two hours. And so just building up our time as lay missionaries on the field is something I think is, is good because our time just takes, we just don't have enough time. We're too comfortable to really be on God's mission. So that's a big barrier for sure. Yeah. Last question. Share with our listeners a word of wisdom, a word of encouragement, a prophetic word, just to encourage people that they can do it. Hmm. 
they can start a DBS. They can, you know, reach kids. They can reach them. You know, in the U.S., as you know, there's a lot of Muslims in the U.S. I mean, mm-hmm. here in L.A., we've got a, a large village of, of Muslim population. Just mm. give people an encouragement of like what God could do through them. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think the encouragement is that God is on the move. God wants to speak to us. And God is already doing things in places you're at. And he just wants to partner with each one of us. And so we really see that human partnership as accelerating gospel growth. And you don't get human partnership without hearing from God and obeying. So I just encourage us to to get out there. So I'm actually doing a talk on the Great Commission coming up next week. And I just as I was processing a little bit, a lot of people will hear the grace commission of go and make disciples of all people and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And they'll actually read that and they'll say, that's not my job. And I just want to encourage us that if we leave it to the experts, it's we're never going to fulfill the great commission. It is our job. We need to step up. And what, what I would call make a second decision. The first decision, I'm a follower of Jesus. The second decision is I'm going to be involved in his mission. And the third thing is, I just believe that God is honoring obedience. So as we, as people step into obedience, blessing will come. Outcomes will come. Uh, even my story of, I'm just a surfer hanging out on Maui. And I just said, God, I'm, I'll do anything you say, because I don't want to waste my life. Uh, that simple step of obedience led to an incredible movement of God in my life. So I just want to encourage us Let's start obeying and just start seeing God move and let's start experimenting in the places that we we are at because people are hungry. And then just for the refugee situation, these refugees are coming. They're obviously scared. They're excited. They have all these different emotions. Uh, but what I know from our work in the Middle East and Europe is that when, when, when these refugees from a Muslim background come to the United States, they are expecting to hear the gospel. Yes, you can give them furniture and food and have fun with them, but they are expecting to hear the gospel. In fact, we were talking with someone that went to Germany, and one of our Arabic speaker guys said, so how did you find a church when you came here? We're like, well, no one shared the gospel with us. They give us blankets, they give us food, but not one person shared the gospel with us, and we want to know what that gospel is. So let's share the gospel. They're open for it. They're in our country. And I would just encourage you also that the gospel can transform their life. And it is a valuable thing for them. You know, we think of poverty, we think of just marital issues and and issues with children, everything. Changing the heart can change all of those things and lead to a really bright future. So the only way I think that you can change the heart for the better is through faith in Jesus. So those would be my encouragements. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Certainly appreciate it. My heart's going pitter-patter for what Jesus is doing around the world. Mm, amen. If someone wanted to, to get in contact with you, maybe you know, just to, to know how to, to more strategically pray or to maybe be involved themselves, or um, you know, you're, you're like myself, we're both uh, raised support. If they wanted to you know, maybe financially give to yourself or the movement that's happening, how would they go about contacting you? Hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. You know, I think the easiest way is just Chris, chrs.marshall with two L's at novo, N-O-V-O dot org. I have a WhatsApp prayer group. We have a Middle East prayer group as well on WhatsApp that we share weekly updates on how to pray for our ministries. And certainly if you wanted to get on those, I'd be happy to put you on those. And then, then I do different updates on my Instagram account at Marshall 
Maui, M-A-U-I, as my Instagram accounts. I do updates periodically on there as well. So yeah, I would love to communicate with you there. And just an encouragement, you know, Novo, we, we train lay missionaries and I think we do it really well and it's all free. So uh, if you ever wanted to be trained as a lay missionary, I think the first step is going through our cohort, novo.org backslash S as in Sam, A as in Apple cohort. And you can find out more information there. Yes, definitely. We we uh, took a group of people through that spiritual authority cohort. It's it's life changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has the power to be life changing. So, it does. well, thanks again, Chris, for joining us. Certainly appreciate it. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Only on a Sunday. Next time, we will continue our conversation with Kirk Overstreet from the Send Network. If you've enjoyed the content offered on these podcasts and would like to support Kristen and I and our team, we would like to invite you to donate at scvunderground.org. We truly appreciate any support from our listeners. Thanks again for joining us, and we will see you next time.